Hey guys, uh, good morning. Good to see you today. And um, listen, questions you never thought you could ask in church begins today. Let me explain to you how this works. What we're inviting you to do today is get this out of your pocket. Take your cell phone out, and in about two minutes, we are going to flash a phone number on the screen. And what we are going to invite you to do is text in any question you might have, anything goes, anything about God, Christianity, the Bible, fellowship of faith, or anything that intersects in your life with it. What I'll do is get those questions anonymously, and I am just going to do the best job I can of answering them in real time right here on the spot. Now, let me explain the spirit of this. I believe questions are good. There's a certain strain of thought that has unfortunately come into Christianity, where people have begun to associate questions with doubt equals bad. But I think we come here as fallible people, not knowing everything, and struggling with God and even what we do know about Him. And if we're taking our faith seriously and actually trying to live it and come to terms with it, I believe that better raise questions. And I want to let you know today that your questions here are welcome. The crazy, the heretical, the outlandish, the irreverent. These questions, if they're coming sincerely from you, I want you to know that you are free to ask them in this place because we think we need to be a church where people can be open about the questions they're asking because if we can't ask them here, what are we doing here, right? Let me show you one of our core values here at Fellowship of Faith. We say this, a desire to be real. We believe the church needs to be a place where people can come and see that Christians are real people it's experiencing joys, passions, and struggles. Because of this, we strive to communicate God's truth and share our experiences in open and honest ways. We believe it's important as a community to be honest about our shortcomings, authentic in our lives and sincere in what we teach. We want to be humble as a church and express our faith in a way that is genuine. It's, it's tapping that that stands behind what we're doing today. And maybe you're here, and you've been a Christian most of your life, and there has been this question that you just never have had satisfactorily answered. Today's the day to ask it. Maybe you're here, and you've been a Christian most of your life, and you've always had this nagging question, but you've been afraid to bring it up because... After all, I've been a, question, a Christian for 30 years. I should know this by now. And so you're really kind of embarrassed to bring it up. So you just kind of let it simmer under the surface. Today is the day to ask it. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. But you want to know more about this Christian thing or the God that Christians worship and whether from a place of curiosity or a place of skepticism or even a place of past wound, there's something churning here today. Today's the day to ask that question. So here's the number. Here we go. It's 1 
815-314-0363. Text any question in to 815-314-0-F-O-F. All right? And these will start coming in here momentarily. And uh, let's see where this takes us today. All right, one question off the bat. Orange shirts going around the property. What gives? Well, you're wearing one. Neil was wearing one. And those of you sitting by the window, every three to five minutes, you may see a pack of people wearing orange shirts circling the property. Hey, why not, right? Um, Here at Fellowship of Faith, we are in partnership with a mission called Oasis for Orphans. And what Oasis for Orphans seeks to do is reach out to people who are orphans in Kenya. In the wake of political insurrection, in the wake of the AIDS crisis, and in the wake of a number of other things. And in a few weeks here at the McHenry River Run, there is a team here called Team Oasis that's going to be running or walking in that 5 slash 10K. And so what they're doing today is a couple things. A, they're practicing. B, they're team building. C, they're just trying to raise some awareness here at Fellowship of Faith, and there's a fundraising thing that they're going to be doing as well that I'll be telling you about a little later on. If you're interested in that kind of thing, find an orange shirt, ask them about it. They would love to tell you. All right? How about this? I have but one question, oh bearded one. Boxers or briefs? (laughs) My answer is specify today or every day. Today's box. Today's like those spandexy kind of things. Aren't those things fantastic? It's like that hybrid boxer brief. Very comfortable, wiki material. I highly recommend. Good question. All right. I don't know if that was a good one, but I'll humor you. When you talk about being a church of 500, where do you put all those people or the cars? We've had a statement here at Fellowship of Faith for a few years now, discussing the kind of church that we want to be and where we're going. Here's the phrase, and I'll be talking more about this next week, but let me tease it out today. If you're here with us for any length of time, you'll hear this phrase, we want to be an Acts 2 church of 500 plus people. Now, the Acts 2 church I referenced last week and we'll get in next week as well. And right now, during the school year, arguably, you'll have about 350 people in this building on any given Sunday. We don't think God is done with us yet, and we don't think our evangelistic impact is expended yet here in McHenry. And it's very easy for churches to become interned and become a little club unto themselves without much care for other people that matter to God that live next door in our neighborhoods or from wherever we're driving from. So this 500-plus mentality is to keep this focus saying, God wants more people to connect with who he is and arguably with the expression of it here. But it does raise the question, where do you put all those people or the cars? Easy. 
laps. It's all about laps. We want to encourage you to ask your friends and family to come and sit on your lap any given Sunday, right? And the creep factor has just escalated. No, you know, it's, it's pretty simple. We can fit, if we go to economy seating, about 250 people in this room. So if you did 100% seating, which no one wants to endure on any given Sunday, right? You could get 500 people in, leaving you with the question, how do you do it comfortably? And the answer is simple, third service. You add a third worship service, and at that level of dilution, it is quite delusion. Dilution, <laughs> it becomes quite comfortable, not only from the seating aspect, but from the, uh, from the parking issues that it creates as well. Yeah, good one. All right, let's see. A little bit longer, let me read it out. Many tell me they won't go to church because there are hypocrites there. I've come to believe we are all hypocrites. So I wonder if we are hypocrites if we claim to be Christian but never attend church or Bible studies or make an effort to learn about our Savior. Let me unpack, and I agree with you completely. I think there's one of three people in the world. There's people that are perfect, people that don't stand for anything, and people who are hypocrites. Take your pick. So you're absolutely right. Churches, and this one included, including the person standing before you, loaded with hypocrites, people who do not practice what they preach. And that isn't to be dismissive of it in any way whatsoever. Jesus has very harsh words to say to people who are immersed in hypocrisy, which is why when we flash that desire to be real idea up there earlier about being a church that is humble, a people that are humble, a people willing to say, I know I'm not doing what I'm supposed to. Oh, dear Jesus, don't be finished with me yet. It's a spirit of humility and repentance that I see is the solution to inevitable hypocrisy. But yeah, I think you're spot on. And I think you're absolutely right that when someone does claim to be a Christian, but they don't gather in worship, they don't gather with other believers, they don't interface themselves with the Word of God, they too are practicing a hypocrisy of their own. Yeah. All right. Another question. Whatever happened to Joseph? Well, that's a good question, and it depends what Joseph you're referring to. The name Joseph comes up in the Bible with all kind, in all kinds of different places, referring to all different Josephs that were out there. Just get lost in the genealogy sometime. But there's two Josephs, and I'm going to guess you mean one of these two. Joseph of the Old Testament, who was one of the sons of Jacob, who became ruler over Israel, or Joseph in the New Testament, who is the stepdad of Jesus. If you're referring to Joseph 1, I encourage you to go back and read the back half of the book of Genesis and Exodus chapter 1, and you'll get the story of what happened to him. If you're talking about Joseph number two, this is Jesus' stepdad, Joseph. He kind of falls off the scene after Jesus hitting 12 years old. Did he die? Was he imprisoned? 
Did he abandon his family? Was he there the entire time and no energy or effort or words were simply given to him after some early key events? No one really knows. How about this? I struggle to keep God in my life daily. I forget. Any tips to keep him there for me daily? Yeah, yeah, a few tips for you. One, make it regular. Find a predictable time and a predictable place that you, you intentionally carve out for intentional time with God and practice it no matter what comes your way. It's getting into a rhythm of regularity that will keep it from becoming sidelined and forgotten. I find for me, despite not being a morning person, hitting it one of the first things in the morning has become integral for me to keeping it regular. Because I'll tell you, life just has a way of taking over the day, doesn't it? And you think you're going to carve it in later. You think you'll carve it in after work or after school, and then 10 other things are waiting for you in the wake. No, examine your own life. Examine your own schedule. And try to find a period of time, and it doesn't have to be long, five minutes, 10 minutes, to do some kind of practiced regimen, like reading the Bible, or a devotional book, or a time of prayer, and seek to do it pretty much every single day. Tip number two, when you fall off the wagon, and you will, don't stay there. I meet so many church people who begin these devotional plans with amazing intentions, and they go great for like four days. And then day five happens, and something unforeseen creeps in, and they forgot, or it gets missed. And they kind of walk away with a strange sense of guilt and shame, like, I'm a failure. I can't do that anymore. I see people do the same thing with working out as well. You miss a day, you miss a day. Pick it up the next day right where you left off. Number three, something that I found incredibly powerful is practice accountability with someone else. Can you actually share that time with someone? Or get together once a week or once every other week with someone to talk about what you've been reading, what you've been praying, what you've been facing, and how it's been going. Practice simple things like these, and I think it will take you a long, long way. Now, I got to apologize. Someone texted in something on Adam and Eve, and that's all I saw, and I hit the delete button um, without intending to. So if you know who you are, retext that back in. How about this? How do we get more people to serve in the church? Simple. Ask those people. Don't put it in a bulletin. Don't leave it to me to ask. If you are serving in a ministry here, share it with someone. Ask them to come alongside of you. Don't ask for blood oaths. Don't look for commitments. Don't get bogged down in all kinds of weirdness about it. Just go up to someone and say, hey, we're looking for help up here. I thought you might be interested. You want to try it out for a day? Guys, I will tell you, you will be amazed and surprised at how people respond to simple, genuine invitations like that. 
encourage you, go for it all the way. How about this? How, let me uh, see if I can wrap my mind around it. How do you make God the good guy, not only when things are good, but when everything seems to be going wrong? Let me repeat it. How do you make God the good guy, not only when things are good, but when everything seems to be going wrong? There's a similar question I was once asked, and for me, they parallel each other. I was serving in a Korean Pentecostal church, believe it or not, and this, this high school kid asked very sincerely, how do you know when God is on your side? I understand the spirit of the question, but this was my response to him and my parallel response to this. It's not up to God to be on your side. It's up to you to be on his side. It is not up to you to make God the good guy. God is the good guy, whether you like what he's doing or not. And the path of faith is realizing, recognizing, or at least holding on in trust to that, despite what seems to be the contrary, when everything is going wrong around you. This was the constant call of the prophets of the Old Testament. Trusting that God is good when things are bad. Trusting that he is gracious and merciful and that it endures forever when it seems like you're being judged or punished or forgotten. Because of these realities in life, this is why faith has become such a central part of Christian expression. And that's what he invites us into. Okay, how about this? It's a dual question. Who created the Bible? How long did it take to create the Bible? Fantastic question. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking of the Bible as a singular book. But remember, the Bible is a collection of 66 books that have brought, been brought together in, in an anthology kind of form. Of those 66 books, you have about 30 to 35 different authors, and it was written over the period of about 1,500 years. So, who created the Bible? Well, I could start naming them. Matthew, John, and Paul, and Moses, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Baruch, and others who had penned it along the way. How long did it take to create it? Well, it was finally codified from a Christian perspective, understand, about 1,500 years in the making. Yeah, good one. All right. How about this? If you deny the Old Testament, how can you believe the good news of New Testament? If you deny the Old Testament, how can you believe the good news of New Testament? At some level, I don't know how you can, but you certainly can. 
and people do it all the time. Never make the mistake of thinking faith and consistency go hand in hand. People believe things all the time and yet are inconsistent within their own belief systems. People believe the New Testament all the time even though they reject the old. Does it make sense when you think about it? No, but it happens. What is your favorite Bible verse? 2 Kings 2, verse 22. Not only because the sequence of twos, which is just beautiful, right? 2 Kings 2, verse 22. You can look it up. How many pages are in the Bible? A lot. (laughs) All right. If Jesus was a Marvel superhero, what would his name be? Also, cape or no cape? Okay, let's do the last one first. No capes, right? We've learned this from the Incredibles. No capes. So we can put that one to the side. Now, I wish you asked me if he was a DC superhero, what would his name be? Because that's easy. It would be Kal-El. All right, but because you didn't let me go to the DC route of things, you leave me stuck in the Marvel universe, and I gotta tell you, I gotta give that one a little bit of thought. I gotta give that one just a little bit of thought, but something tells me that if Jesus were in fact a Marvel superhero, maybe his name would still actually be Jesus. Just a thought. Now, Why does the faith of American Christians seem so weak compared to Christians in other countries? They are facing legitimate persecution and growing while we keep arguing about politics and shrinking. So let me go back to the question. Why does the faith of American Christians seem so weak compared to Christians in other countries? First, I want to caution you. It's so easy to generalize Christians in the United States and to generalize Christians globally. The more that I interface with the global church and the more that I meet leaders and believers around the globe and hear their stories and see firsthand our own, I come to the conclusion, people are people everywhere and all susceptible to sin. But I do think that you're tapping something where it seems like the American church is somewhat apathetic or less willing to risk compared to many of these global churches that we see. And I think the reason is exactly what you brought up. They are facing persecution. And do you know what persecution does? It trains you. It strengthens you. It sifts out the wheat from the chaff. It is easy to be a Christian in America. We don't have persecution, not like they face around the globe, and we have health insurance. Why then do we need God? But you see these places around the globe where they don't have the affluence, the comfort, the safety, and the lull into apathy that it creates. And like an athlete training under arduous circumstances, 
It hardens the soul in a good way and strengthens it. How about this? Does it really matter if we are pre, post, or amillennialist in our beliefs? Now, for the uninitiated, what this person is referring to is different different roadmaps or different pictures of what the end times will look like. And the three main positions are called pre, post, and a millennial. Referring to this, a millennium is a thousand years, right? And what they're asking and what these, these, these theological systems ask is, when is Jesus coming back? When is he coming back? Is he coming back before this thousand-year period described in the book of Revelation? Is he coming back after it, which would be post? Or is it meant to be figurative, therefore amillennial, and not really referring to a literal thousand-year period at all? Now, I'm going to save you the details and arguments in that and stick simply to the question, does it matter? Yeah. Yeah, it does matter. Because what you believe affects how you think, how you live, and what you feel. Your beliefs matter. And beliefs have consequences. So making sure that what you're believing is true and right always matters. But is someone going to lose their salvation over holding the wrong eschatological belief? No. Does it mean someone is somehow going to be stunted in their faith compared to someone who has got the right eschatological belief? No. Does it mean we should separate, per se, over these eschatological beliefs and get into fights and arguments as opposed to debates and seeking the word together? No, of course not. But I do encourage you, yes, it does matter what you believe. All right, how about this? How can we know God's will? God's will for everyday daily decisions when he seems to be silent and distant. I think this is a question that anyone who has sincerely sought the path of God has wrestled with in a deep way. And if you're in that trench right now, I want to encourage you that you are not asking something new and you're not alone. How do you discern God's will? One of the biggest mistakes I see people make in American Christianity today, and one that I'm guilty of making of myself, is I kind of sit around passively waiting for a feeling. God confirms something with a feeling, a sense of peace or a sense of drive or a sense of excitement or a sense of foreboding or show me signs. Give me little innocuous things that trigger what I'm supposed to do. The ancients had a word for that. It was called sorcery and divination. And we Christians love to practice it. What God invites us to do is immerse ourselves in this book, or better, collection of books 
that he put together. And not in such a way to say, Lord, I really don't know what phone plan to choose, so let's see what Exodus 13 has to say. But to go show me, God, what your story is like. Show me the contours of what it means to be a part of it. Show me your character. Show me your likes and your dislikes. Show me your patterns. Show me the history of the way that you have interacted with people in my place in the past. And to learn from it and glean from it. And not in the way of trying to find the magic answer, but letting itself instead impress itself upon your soul and mold you into a godly thinking and feeling person that the Spirit of God can come into and take control of and churn with. This is not something that happens in a moment of panic, racing in your concordance to find the answer. This is something that happens over days and weeks and months and even a lifetime, which is why we do what we do here and why we stress reading this is so vitally important. But I'll tell you, if you're here and you're in the trench and you just don't have a lifetime before a choice you have to make that's before you, and you've soaked yourself in this, you've sought the counsel of wise and spiritually mature friends and your community, and you've prayed and prayed and prayed, and you still find yourself at that place, not knowing what to do. Let me share with you some advice I once heard, attributed to Martin Luther, though I've never been able to find the, find the exact quote. But I like this anyway. And he purportedly said this, if you find yourself standing at that place, and you've done all that stuff that I describe, and you still don't know what to do, leap. Take a leap into the choice that you think is best and most God-honoring before you. And when you leap into the dark, know this. If you chose wisely, God's going to bless it. And if you chose wrongly, God can forgive it so you really can't lose. Think about it. All right. This one came in three times from the same person, so I think they really want to know. Right here, exclamation points, triplicate on each side. Why did you grow out your beard? All right. It was about 10 weeks ago that I got a haircut, and I didn't like how they did the sideburns. So I said, you know what? I'm going to grow out just like a week and a half of scruff until things start to equalize. And you know how this goes. You let it go for a week and a half, and a week and a half turns into two and a half weeks. And it was hitting that itch phase. And women, well, some women here, you'll just have to take my word for it, all right? But it started to hit that itch phase, and it was ready to go. But then something amazing happened. The love of my life started looking at me 
with that gleam in her eye that I knew from the 20s. And she would look, and she would press herself up to me a little bit and go, I love it. I love it. And do you know what you do when the person you think is the most amazing human being on Mother Earth presses their body against you and starts stroking your face? You keep the beard. (laughs) And hence what you see today. And I'll take one more. In your own words, what is heaven like? What is heaven like? Or what does it look and or feel like being there? Amazing. Amazing. All that it is like to be in the intimate presence of God. Too many people mistakenly think about heaven as a great piece of real estate that God happened to kind of fall upon and go, oh man, I'm going to set up shop here. No, what makes heaven great is God. Because it's from God that flow things like these. Life, joy, peace, glory, power, strength, goodness, hope. They emanate from God like heat radiates from the sun. So the closer you come into God's presence, the more you come into that radiation blast. And heaven is being in that throne room with God. Being in his presence, bombarded by his love and joy and hope and goodness, and strength, and glory, and honor, and might, eradicating away everything that is contrary to him. Imagine what it is like to bask in that, even for just a day. Now imagine what it's like to bask in that every day until Christ returns and our bodies are raised. That's what heaven is like. Fantastic, fantastic questions this morning. And I didn't get to them all. So let me share with you where it goes from here. These next two weeks, questions you never thought you could ask in church continues. And for these next two weeks, we continue to invite you to bring your phones, to bring your questions, to bring your friends who are asking questions to come and ask them in real time like we've been doing today. If I didn't hit your question yet, fear not, there is still next Sunday. And what we'll do next Sunday at 9 o'clock is take the unanswered questions from 9 o'clock here today and then step into the new territory of freshly asked ones as well. So I want to invite you to rise. The band is going to come forward. And what I'd like to do together is just take a moment to pray. 
let's, let's simulcast with the throne room of heaven for a moment and see God as we close our worship today. God, we come, we gather here this morning with questions, sometimes worries, and maybe fears. We come with curiosities, hunger to know you more, maybe doubts and anxieties about who you are or what you're up to in this world. I pray this week that the questions continue to churn in each of our lives, that we think about you deeply and that we wrestle with you sincerely as we live these lives you've given us. Guide us as a church to know you more, to know you more, to love you more, and to follow you more truly. God, this we pray. Amen.